Shrinkwrap Radio number 843, Amy Myers, Ph.D., LCSW, discussing the view from the other side of the couch. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Today's guest hosts the podcast, What Would Dr. Myers Do?, where she discusses therapy from the perspective of a clinician, unpacking what therapists think and feel as we help our clients navigate their lives. Ann Myers received her PhD and master's in social work from a Hunter College School of Social Work and trained for 10 years in psychoanalytic psychotherapy at the National Association for Psychoanalysis. She is a professor and director of field education at Malloy University on Long Island, where she teaches courses in human behavior across the lifespan. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Amy Myers, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. It's wonderful to be here, having listened to your program for many years. Oh, my heart is filled with joy <laughs> to hear that, to hear that. Um, well, we're going to be talking about, you're, you're another podcaster, and it's always great to talk to a podcaster. You're a podcaster, you're a blogger, you are many things, and uh, we're going to focus in on those many things, and we'll get to the podcasting, etc. in a bit, but I want to start off kind of with your background. So um, I hear a bit of New York in your voice, I think. Uh, where did you grow up? Well, I'm proud of that in my voice, thank you, because uh, I actually grew up in Long Island. But I've, as I've has said recently, I feel like I grew up in New York because I've been here since after college, so about 30 years. Do I get to call myself a New Yorker yet? I would think so. I would think, <laughs> and, and to me, Long Island is pretty much synonymous with New York, and that's, uh, that's uh, my ignorance, I guess, that, that I sort of lump it together. <laughs> Um, they're a little distinct because there are pockets, many, many, many pockets of Long Island that are not quite diverse like New York City. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 So uh, what kind of family did you grow up in? What was your family like? Oh, uh, so my, what was my family like? My family was dysfunctional. <laughs> oh, but, wonderful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the right place, right? Yeah, right. Um, I have a brother, and uh, we are the only children of two parents, um, one who is still with us, one who is not. And um, again, we grew up uh, for the first many years in Riverdale, which is in the Bronx. And uh, I've been told that I'm not allowed to say I'm from the Bronx because it was a middle class suburb of the Bronx and doesn't huh. really reflect, you know, the persona of of the Bronx. And we wow. moved to Long Island when I was 12. And as I just mentioned, worked my way back into the city after college. So um, my parents were working parents. My mother was a therapist. She uh -huh. got her master's. Yeah. If I remember, she got her master's when I was, I want to say like 10 years old, and then worked in outpatient clinics and eventually private practice in her, our home. And uh, my father was a radiologist. Okay. So did uh, did the fact that your mother was uh, was a therapist, did that make you want to become a therapist or, or, or did you initially reject that and did it take many years to come back around? I never rejected it. And one would think that it would come from 
you know, the modeling of my mother, but I think it's more got to do with the dysfunction and really, you know, being curious about interpersonal dynamics and the way that people relate to each other and why and where and how that develops. Yeah. Uh, Would you uh, be willing to talk a bit about the dysfunction? You know, it's really interesting because I I didn't know if you were going to ask about this. And just yesterday, I was interviewed on my podcast by somebody that I wanted to have on as a guest who is a social worker. And it turns out her background is a documentarian. And she said to me that, you know, I think your audience would find it interesting to know about your career trajectory and just your life and who you are. And I thought about it before we actually did the recording. And I said, okay. I think I'm going to use this as my first opportunity to come out. And by come out, as I put in quotes, is um, my own history of sibling abuse. Um, I have a series on my podcast dedicated to that topic, and I did my dissertation on that topic and um, have kind of developed an expertise in the area, but I never really took public ownership of that. Okay. And well, I saw so, that in your bio, and that's that sort of led me to to want to pursue that a bit more. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I've never really told my full story. I'm not quite sure I'm ready to do that. Uh, but this is the beginning of just, you know, letting folks know that it is reparative. Uh, I mean, it can be repaired. That therapists are people with their own issues who have also generally struggled probably, you know, in our lifetime and has developed our interest in allowing or providing that compassion for other people. And so part of that is, you know, my, my history, but I think I was hesitant for so long because I'm, I'm beyond midlife at this point. And so why did I wait so long? Uh, Probably due to one, there's still being some sense of shame around it in some mm-hmm. way and not yeah. that i feel like did something to elicit it and that kind of shame but just i don't want that to be my identity i don't right. i don't i don't want to wear that as my identity i want yeah. people to see me for me and who i am now uh, which is a totally different person than you know when this was occurring i wonder if i can push you to be just a little bit more explicit because sibling abuse i'm not sure what that means that's such a general term oh um, well, as I've explained on my podcast, uh, I can uh, one of the most important thing to do is to distinguish it from sibling rivalry. So I don't know if that's what you mean when, you know, what do you mean by sibling abuse? For me, I was physically and emotionally abused. Of course, there's sexual abuse as well. But okay. it's basically, yeah. I mean, if I were going to summarize it really quickly, it's this really similar to parent-child abuse, only it occurs between and amongst siblings. Yeah, yeah. Simply said. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate your uh, being willing to go there uh, and g- give me a little background on that because I I saw in your bio that it's been a, uh, an important area for you uh, that that you uh, are working in and, and working out, <laughs> working yes. on, working out. Yes, yes. Um, where did you uh, – so at what point did you know that you wanted to become a therapist? Uh, I have a feeling it was in college. I can't really kind of put my finger on it, but uh, in my school, they didn't have a social work program. I majored in sociology because, again, I I knew I was interested in people, and I also was drawn towards an area that I was doing well in, and I think we tend to excel in things that come naturally to us as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. So I majored in sociology and uh, Where where was that? What school was that? That was at Ithaca College, upstate New York. Okay. Um, and I then pursued a master's in social work thereafter, where I knew uh, I, I, I had a terrible memory regarding my own trajectory, but I <laughs> I knew I, I wanted to be a social worker, but I think I also wanted to be a therapist. And I knew it would take more than two years of graduate school, but that that was my start. Let me let me see if this is really where I want to go. Uh, and it was confirmed. And so I didn't think that after two years of uh, graduate school that that really prepared me to be a therapist. So I shortly thereafter embarked on a 10-year journey in a psychoanalytic institute. Yeah. And so uh, so that and, and you, you got your, your master's in social work and a PhD in, at Hunter. And I'm familiar with the name Hunter, but where is that located? That's in New York City. It's a CUNY school. 
It's in city, the city University of New York. Yeah, okay. uh, it was on 79th Street, and it's now made its way up to uh, to uh, oh my God, sorry, 118th Street. But okay. <laughs> uh, none, I don't know what that if that has much meaning to our listeners, your listeners. But um, it was so actually the 10 years of psychoanalytic training was in between the masters and the PhD. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I assume that the that a lot of the psychoanalytic training was both was both training because you wanted to get deeper, be able to do, do deeper work, and also do deeper work with yourself and understand yourself and and your childhood and make sense of it. Yeah, um, I think that that began as soon as I started my master's degree, because I really, to this day, I say this all the time, I believe that BSW and MSW students and part of the curriculum should be a mandate for your own therapy. But Mm. I knew that not only did I have to work something out and I, you know, I I needed to work on my stuff, but that also to be a good therapist, I had to have the experience of being on the other side of the couch. So um, being in an institute, they actually require, what was it? Three times a week for four years. Wow, that's so. Very I did some intensive. heavy lifting. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say heavy yeah. lifting is yeah. right. Wow, and um, you know, I might have wanted to become a social worker had I known that that was an option. But at the time that you know that I was in school a long time ago, there was no master's level uh, degree that you could get that I knew about. Actually, if I had known, if anybody had ever mentioned, well, you know, there's something called social work or psychiatric social work, I would have gone for it because that would have sounded like the easy, the easier mm-hmm. route than, mm-hmm. you know, becoming a, 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 a uh, going to medical school to become a psychiatrist or even, right. and the, the funny thing is I spent so long in graduate school I could have become a psychiatrist or a doctor or something like that. But, hey, the chips fell the way they needed to fall. But, <laughs> but it's also sure. a very different focus, yeah. right? I mean, medical school and, and going into psychiatry is really focusing on, you know, the, the chemical composition of the mind. I wouldn't have known tr- that at the time. <laughs> at the t- oh, at the time. We're so, okay, okay. Yeah, right. I would not have known okay. that. Right, I was pretty right. naive. Uh-huh. But, I, but I had a kind of a general sense, like you, that I was wanted to work with people, that I was interested in people, that uh, people tended to confide in high school, you know, <laughs> in right. high school and college. People tended to confide their problems in me, and I, I liked that part of it. And I, I ended up majoring in creative writing, and I felt there was some connection between the novels that I was reading and drawn to because they got you know into the substance of people's lives mm. and that was what I thought being a therapist might be mm. and you were correct <laughs> it looks like it yeah, as, as it <laughs> as it turned out um, and um, so we should mention that you've had really diverse clinical experience I mean you don't look that old but uh, and maybe you're not that old, but my God, you've had a lot of experience. Uh, take us through define, some of that. Define old. Yeah, really. <laughs> define, yeah. What's old? Uh, it's all relative, right? When I yeah. remember, I thought 30 years old was old. Yeah. Uh, so take you through some of that experience. Uh, oh, boy. So, I mean, I've worked in, a, in an inpatient psychiatric hospital on a male admissions ward. I've worked in outpatient therapy for many years before I started my private practice, which really was a diverse experience even within that setting, right? Diversity of age, diversity of socioeconomic status, diversity of diagnoses. Um, I remember my first job out of graduate school was working with substance abusing mothers. And I really, I have to say, I had no interest at the time in working with that population, but I knew I needed to get my feet wet. And that was the job that called to me or was available at the time. And I think that no matter what I've done, you work, you learn from, and you can, that's the beauty yeah. of this work is that, you know, there's a lot of skills that are generally, pra- you know, applicable to any population that you work with. I've worked in program development. I've worked with the post-incarcerated population. Um, but I have to say my, and I've, and I 
don't regret a single experience. But uh, my most rewarding experiences is working with folks like me and you of the neurotic population um, and helping piece together the parts of our lives and, uh, you know, understanding our past and how that influences our present. I'm, I'm really, you know, and, and the focus of my podcast is really on counter-transference, right? So it's it's fascinating to me to, to continuously look at us as practitioners as we're understanding our clients as well. Yeah, yeah. And the podcast is is, uh, is interesting. It's, it's called... Um... I know what it's called. What would Dr. Myers do? What would Dr. Myers do? Which is a, and tell us about about what you had in mind when you decided to do that. What were you thinking of? Well, I I didn't um, gestate over the idea for a long time. I'll have to tell you what happened. It was very organic. I was teaching my class on generalist practice and helping the students prepare for entering their field practicums. And one student, and we had some really lively discussions and, you know, always these kind of anticipatory scenarios. And one student said to me, oh, I wish I had you in my back pocket that I could always kind of pull out and be like, what would Dr. Myers do? And somehow I was thinking, well, how can how can we make this more public? And I don't love um, academic writing, even though that's a requirement to be part of academia. I'm a much more kind of natural from my head writer. And um, so I thought, okay, I could do this through blog work, but also like, you know, podcasts are very trendy now and it's a way to get your voice out to, you know, a large population. And so I thought it could be very helpful to beginners, but also we cover topics that seasoned practitioners can relate to. And importantly, I wanted everyone, anyone not even in the field, to be able to relate to it. So if you're someone who's curious about yourself, curious about other people, I think that it allows you to really kind of look inward. There's something that's going to speak to anyone and everyone in every episode. So I was I was taken back to, I also teach human behavior across the lifespan. And I always see students start to drift off in that class. And I always joke that it can't be because of me, right? It's They're not drifting <laughs> off because they're bored. But I see what's happening is that they're starting to think about themselves and their own families. Yeah, yeah, right. Dynamics. And I thought, well, why not Why not allow everybody who's interested in that, you know, and doesn't and can just sit in their car or exercise or listen wherever they want and have that internal self-reflective process. So what's the structure of of your podcast? As you know, I, I have guests, and that's the structure of mine. Uh, do you have guests, or how do you come so, up with the topics? First of all, I'm rearing our 26th episode, so it's I'm very new to the game. Um, but thus far, yes, I've had guests, mostly who have been my students or alum. Um, I'm moving into now seasoned professionals, and we talk about anything from cases and again, looking at countertransference to talking about a particular topic, whether it's self-disclosure, engagement, uh, boundaries, whatever it might be, their own personal life histories, and how they have to really consider how they approach their work and not let this stuff interfere or use their self without necessarily self-disclosing, right, to to yeah. benefit the client. But it's always thinking about where are we in this? Yeah. And I've also now recorded several episodes that are is just me talking, whether it's about confrontation or sibling abuse and wanting to, again, just have it resonate with, with folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've looked at your... At your uh... I haven't really listened to the podcast, which I, I can't believe what? I didn't. I, yeah, I can't <laughs> believe I didn't in preparing it. I did. I don't think I listened. I may have listened to. This. My memory is not good at this point in life. Um, but uh, but I do remember looking at the at blog topics, and I was struck by how substantial they were. And um, And now that I've heard you talk a bit about the podcast, I I see that. There's a lot of substantial content there as well, and it's really about, okay, what's it like to be a therapist and what goes on in the therapist's mind it's, and what are the, the big issues. Exactly. And, and so that, that, all, that all makes more sense to me now than the, than the title of the show initially did. Uh, the title uh-huh. of the show left me uh, 
uncertain. Ooh, uh, <laughs> that's not good. Well, 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 that's fair. It's not that's not good for me. Um, and maybe at some point I'll look at that. But uh, that's very curious. You know, it's funny because I felt that the title was a little grandiose. And I was very anxious about, like, you know, who's Dr. See, Myers? Yes, and right. Who, and who cares what she would do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can, I can understand but that. But I thought that, you well. know, if my if my students felt that that was appropriate and that they kind of saw me as somebody who could offer some wisdom and help and direction, then eventually I could capture an audience that would, you know, feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I don't have a better alternative title that comes to mind. I mean, this is probably, I mean, you know, it's probably perfect uh, f for what you actually are doing. Um, so which came first, the podcast or the blog or? Uh, the podcast came first, Okay. Uh, actually. And then I thought I, you know, wanted to kind of riff on some of the topics that uh -huh. we had been talking about. And sometimes the blog has nothing to do with a particular episode. It's just a thought of the day, um, you know, that I thought could be helpful to some to some folks and relatable. That's really yeah. what I want, relatable. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your current work. Uh, you, uh, you have a... Um, you're a professor and director of field education at Malloy University on Long Island. I must confess, right. I had not—I had heard of Long Island, but not Malloy. Mm -hmm. uh, what sort of school is that? So it's an undergraduate um, university. It's small. It's um, Dominican. It is. Um, uh, it's located in Nassau County. It's got a major reputation for its nursing program. Um, but I have to say our social work department has put out some amazing social workers and a lot of the community is interested in having our students intern for them and subsequently hire them. And we have some competition in the area. So we were a college. We actually very recently turned into a university even though that we had the qualifications for a university for quite some time, but we just really had never made the application. So um, I think we're going to become more known, um, you know, across across the United States. Um, I think you're not alone in, in not really having heard of it outside of the tri-state area. Uh, you said Dominican, and I'm wondering to what extent is it is it Roman Catholic? Not at all. No, no. Is it Roman <laughs> Catholic? Um, I mean, I, I think it has some roots in Catholicism, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it's not like it's a religious school through and through. It's more in the sense of, you know, we have four pillars, community service, um, to name a few. And it, you know, has certain undercurrents of values of the Dominican sisters and the Dominican tradition. And, um, you know, it's not like we have prayer in classes or anything like that. And I'm Jewish, by the way. So, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable yeah. teaching there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that got me wondering was in its, uh, I was, went to the site to try to find out more about it. And um, it mentioned spirituality as being yes. one of the key things. That was and, one of the pillars I didn't yeah, mention. <laughs> yes. Yeah, being one of the pillars. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, I wonder, you know, what sort of spirituality do they have in mind? I'm all for spirituality, but again, that can cover a wide range of things. That's um, the wonder of it. And I think that that demonstrates an openness, right? And a welcoming yeah. to, to any religion and any form of spirituality. Yeah, yeah. So, so it sounds it sounds good to me. Actually, I was in a similar situation of of my academic career was at Sonoma State College, mm -hmm. and then later that became Sonoma State University, mm. and, and uh, so there was a similar transition there, and it happened. I. Th I think it kind of happened throughout the system that there was a state college system and a state university system. And, 
and the UC system, right. very confusing. The University mm-hmm. of California, Berkeley, and so on, high prestige mm-hmm. academic places, and mm-hmm. then the ones that were more sort of practically oriented. And uh, so I was drawn to um, to Sonoma State. And I'm also thinking, I'm realizing that there's a school in Marin County called Dominican. And, mm. uh, and lots of people go to Dominican, and, and some of the people I know have done part-time teaching at, at Dominican. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a very similar uh, situation. Uh, you know, they probably know each other <laughs> somewhat, somehow. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, well, I guess I would like to to dig into something that you want to dig into. Uh, it might be it might be one of your uh, one of your blog topics or something else that's uh, top of mind for you for uh, you know for the time that we have together. Oh, now. that's such a generous question. I I wish I would have given that some thought. I mean, so many topics interest me uh, regarding therapy and the therapeutic world and different populations. But of course, you know. I'm going to I'm going to toss that one back to you because I can talk endlessly about countertransference and or sibling abuse or both, right? So yeah. how do I get in there? Uh, talk about countertransference. <laughs> okay, I'll talk about countertransference. So um, you know, one thing I don't know, even though I've listened to many of your episodes, is your audience, and I assume most of your audience is in the field, but I'm always kind of sensitized to those who listen to any podcast therapy podcast and and are not in the field and so I'm going to break it down a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. And I would say in terms of my audience my impression is you know it's 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 very varied and um but uh so I think a lot of them are professionals mm-hmm. and uh and then I think quite a few are either in therapy or planning to be in therapy or wondering about therapy. So it's relevant. Okay. Go ahead. So first I have to, you know, before we talk about countertransference, I have to start with transference and the two are very closely aligned. Um, transference is basically projections that clients make onto the therapist and right. countertransference is the projections that therapists make onto the client. And some of these are in our awareness and much of it is not in our awareness, right? It's unconscious. So basically how I like to describe so it the, is that's that, a key point. I want to underscore yeah. unconscious mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to miss that and to kind of go into, um, feelings of, of blame, let's say, uh, blaming the therapist for something that they've done and uh, they don't like me. Right. F- will frequently come up, right? Right. Uh, they don't like me. They, they're rejecting me. Blah, right. Blah, blah, blah. You, you pick up the ball from there. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yes, how I like to describe it is that basically we have had numerous and multiple experiences when we were younger with people and in certain situations that um, we take in, we internalize, we make our own, we believe those experiences and those words that have spoken to us or the messaging that has been given to us, either very positive, right? You're wonderful, you're great, you're so smart, you're attractive, whatever it may be, or very critical, you're no good, you know, you're you're this or you're that, or you can't do this. We take that in, right? Because we're being molded at young ages and we are in our, the midst of our identity development and we are reliant on other people to give us feedback about who we are and how we move through this world. So after we internalize it, we externalize it. We then move through this world expecting other people to relate to us as these figures did in our earlier life. And so that's where the projection lies in the sense that, David, if I were meeting you for the first time and you even just looked at me a certain way and I was um, sensitized to being criticized, I would think that your look, I might interpret it as being judgmental, right, or critical. Or after, uh, or also not knowing you, if you were my professor and I walked into your classroom and I have an issue with authority because authoritative figures in my life, whether they were mentors, teachers, or caregivers, treated me a certain way, I would already be primed to receive you 
in a certain way when I entered that situation, right? And a lot of my students like will talk about walking through the hallways and this friend didn't acknowledge them on this day. So, um, you know, they start to think about what did I do when in fact that other person might be having a bad day or in their own zone that they didn't right. really <laughs> see you. And yeah. so that's why it's these are projections. And we assume that other people are going to relate to us in this similar fashion. We do this millions of times a day. And most of us aren't aware of the fact that what we are doing is projecting. It's not the real situation. And I always say we never really know what somebody else is thinking or feeling unless we ask them. So we come to all these conclusions on our own. And I think that it's really, really important as therapists, right? This is where the counter-transference comes in because, again, we're human beings too. We've had these earlier life experiences as well, and even not just earlier, in our everyday as we continue to grow and relate in the world and we continue to make assumptions about people and how they're going to relate to us. And we now have established our inner sense of self. Is it kind? Is it nice? Is it harsh? Is it mean? And um, so when something happens between a client and a therapist, I think it's incumbent upon the therapist to be really self-aware and self-reflective to know, like the example you were giving earlier, that client could come in and um, say to you, you know, I, I forget exactly what you said, but made me feel a certain way or right. It's like, am I making them feel this way? I need to be able to look at that and say, is it me? And do I need to consider how I'm relating to you? Or is this giving me information about the client and how they move through this world, right? Thinking about how other people are feeling and thinking about them. Yeah, you know, what you're saying reminds me that um, there are different flavors of psychoanalysis. And I'm wondering what flavor <laughs> uh, your school was. Um, well, I could, I, I'm glad you asked that because I thought you were going to ask what is my flavor currently, and I don't even know anymore. <laughs> you like? Right. Um, so it was it was very Freudian. It was very psychoanalytic. It was Kleinian, uh, but it was also a Stalero, and it was also relational, you know, relational and ego psychology and self psychology, and so. Um, I mean, there was a lot of emphasis, obviously, on working with the unconscious. And I think I have somehow taken and adapted and adopted uh, many of those theorists. But I, it's almost as though, you know, many, many moons later, I can't tell you which angle I exactly work from. It's just become a part of me. Sure. And I also think that as I've developed in my practice, as well as developed as a human being, as well as working with a different generation at this point in life, that I have to become much more eclectic. And yeah. I can't just approach every client with a psychoanalytic framework, right? It depends yeah. on who you're working with and what they're bringing to you and what they can tolerate. How many yeah. of our clients now can lay down on a couch with a therapist sitting behind them and you know, tap into their unconscious? Now we've moved in such to the other extreme that clients want interaction, they want advice, they want, you know, to feel heard and understood and um, and kind of see us as people who have a certain level of wisdom. And I always say, though, on the on the one hand, you know, the way that I would lead my life is not necessarily the way that other people or my clients need to or do lead their lives. So we need to kind of come to a place where we can explore and find out what would work best for you. Yeah, I, I like how open you are to the complexities of uh, of the reality in which we all swim these days, mm. and um, it's very complex in ter even in terms of the the dynamics of transference and countertransference. There's so many kind of levels of that. It, you know, it can kind of drive yourself crazy trying to <laughs> go around in in that and. Um, and um, and then, the, as you point out, the people, the, the ex expectations that people have for therapists and what the therapist can be or do for them are also so so varied. Mm -hmm. And there are populations that for, that are so far away from any kind of therapy, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and are these people to be cast into outer darkness, as it were? Uh, 
you know, and the answer is no. We have to we have to find compassion, mm-hmm. you know, to to work with these people as well. Mm-hmm. That's um, why I think that you know it's so important to again be eclectic. You know, I've utilized a lot more CBT now, right? Because people need some concrete coping skills. Yeah. And we know that psychodynamic and psychoanalytic therapy takes a very long time. I always say if it took you, you know, 40, 50 years to develop into who you are, we're not going to undo that overnight. So yeah. how does somebody cope in the meantime? They need some concrete ways of working. And then that is also where I think my social work background comes in, uh, you know, handy because you know, just even providing resources, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Uh, being a liaison to the community. You know, people say they want to, I only want to do micro work, right? I want to focus on the individual or do therapy, but you can't really do micro without the macro and you can't do macro without the micro. Okay. Well, let's move on to that other topic. Okay. Um, which sibling relationships. Yes. Yeah. Yes, um, let's move on to that. Where do we start with that? First of all, sibling relationships are the longest relationship you'll ever have in your lifetime, which is kind of really, you know, astonishing, really, to kind of hear that because I don't yeah, know how many people really. really think about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, unless, of course, you emotionally cut them off, but <laughs> otherwise, it's you know, from birth till death, they're there. The, right? they'll, they'll probably live longer than your parents. In in a lot Hopefully, of situations, right. mostly, right? Yes. So, and that's how they get to be the longest relationships. Yes. And they're very impactful. You know, they shape our idea of loyalty, uh, friendship, communication, our ability to negotiate, and um, our, our framework about competition. And, I mean, there's so yeah. much. And love. And... Um, sharing and mutuality and and so much right and trust uh, and trust of course yeah, sorry yeah. how could i leave that out right? that's the <laughs> yeah. relic almost yeah. for all of these other things yes right. yeah. and so um they it's amazing to me how in our work i don't know if you've experienced this as well we we don't tend to give enough attention to the impact on our development of the sibling relationship. And I know that like those who work in outpatient mental health clinics, certainly, you know, that's not part of the intake, right? Or the biopsychosocial that's performed to try and understand some of the family history and dynamics that are leading up to or contributing to the current situation being presented. And I think that we have to, you know, get there fast because to me, it's, it's obvious. And maybe it's obvious to me because of the situation that I had, right? That when it's not a healthy relationship, um, it can be really scarring. And um, all of those dimensions that I mentioned are impacted. Yeah. And some of the populations that we see today are come from uh, uh, ethnicities that are much more heavily weighted towards uh, a family and sibling relationships and so on. And what, we might, can you say more? What does that mean? Uh, well, I'm thinking of uh, of people who are from uh, from Asia, uh, people who are from Mexico or South America, and so on. And uh, sibling relationships uh, and and uh, sibling love and so on uh, uh, can be a, a major major dynamic in their lives. Um, Major. I understand what you're saying, you know, in regard to um, also the expectations within a family, right, of being caregivers, of um, depending on each other and a whole host of other uh, aspects of the relationship. But I don't know if that's so – oh, that's interesting. Um, Okay, something something to ponder further, for sure. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think in America, um, we generally don't have respect for our family members in the way that they do for that the they do in other countries. And I mean, if you look at um, you know the treatment of parents, right, where in other countries parents are revered and elders are revered, and you would never put them in a nursing home as they got older. You know, you're going to take care of them um, throughout their lifetime, and we just don't have that level of um, for lack of a better word at this moment, respect in our culture, I think, yeah. in our American culture. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the sort of core, historical core value 
uh, in our culture has been independence and being an independent person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one hopes to get free from their family mm-hmm. uh, to some degree. And then later, later you're confronted with, well, <laughs> you can't necessarily do that. And you have to find your, 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 your boundaries and, and your place where you're going to be. I think we live in a crazy mixed up culture. <laughs> I'm thinking that more and more myself. Yes, yeah. it's it's very challenging, yeah. to say the yeah. least. Yes, yeah. and that I think we have a lot of learn a lot to learn. We, things we can learn from other cultures. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm running out of fuel here. Uh, you can uh, take us wherever you want to, or we can uh, we can begin to wrap things up. Um, well, uh, I would just say, let's see, if you want to learn more about sibling abuse and the impact that it has on development and the long-term implications for having had that experience, and certainly in the way that you had stated in regard to trust and all these other aspects that are required for intimate relatedness, then please do listen to that series on my podcast. Again, it's called What Would Dr. Myers Do? And if you are just generally interested in learning more about you, I think you'll find something to take, uh, something to ponder as well. Um, And I think for everyone, I, I guess I would want to send this message if I could, if we're going to wrap up, which would be somebody in my class just yesterday said, I think uh, this is, said this about herself. I feel like I'm almost too self-aware. And that just took me back to a time in my life around her age when I felt the same way. And probably for many years thereafter, where I often said, wow, I, you know, there's something to this idea that ignorance is bliss. And I think that it has to do with when you are self-aware and you don't like yourself very much or you're uncovering things that are, you know, unpleasant, um, then yeah, you know, self-awareness is is not something you want to embrace. But I think that the more work you do on yourself or the older you get, or maybe both of those things in combination, self-awareness um, gives you a leg up in so many ways in this world and particularly in the realm of relatedness and connection to other people, when you understand who you are and where certain thoughts and feelings and behavior comes from, then aren't you armed with the ability to use that to your advantage to build connection in a really positive way? Aren't you armed with the ability to really like yourself and see that you're a complex people, you know, that we are all complex and that while we have our limitations, of course, we also have strengths that we're just not attuned to enough. Um, And I could say so much more about that, but I think it was just kind of like a a moment where I stopped and said, wow, wow, I am so far from that feeling. Thank God, (laughs) because it's a really uncomfortable place to be in where you think that self-awareness is kind of a curse and you spoke about liking yourself, and I was finding my, I was thinking about self-acceptance as mm-hmm. being a, a, a an important place to arrive to mm-hmm. in your life. Maybe after a lot of ups and downs and judgments, et cetera, self self condemnation and and condemnation from others and setbacks and so on, but to come to a place where the bottom line is some appreciation for um, for the value of your life and um, and I would think that's that's one of the fruits of a good psychoanalysis or a good therapy or just a good life well I was going to say a lot of therapy (laughs) and I think through that process you improve your life when you say a good life I mean I don't know how many of us are born with a good life and how we would define a good life And, you know, a lot of people think about where you grew up and what you started with, right? And obviously it has nothing to do with how my life kind of turned out. Um, There are things that we have control over and things we don't have control over. I think it's a matter of accepting that and accepting the limitations of other people so that we're not chronically disappointed. I think we have to mourn some losses and not even through death, but, you know, for the people in our lives, caregivers included, siblings included, of not being able to be who we needed them to be perhaps at the time, but who probably did the best they could. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that's freeing. 
you know, once you kind of accept that and mourn that and, you know, understand that people are limited and it's okay. There's no perfect person and there's certainly no perfect parent and it's the hardest job in the world. And um, we're all just people trying to make our way. Right, right. Yeah, that's well, all I got to say for now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I know that you could say a lot more and that you do say a lot more on your on your blog and on your podcast interviews. So I want to encourage people to indeed go find them. And uh, your podcast is on Spotify, so they can probably find you somehow by searching Spotify, I would guess. It's right? on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Stitcher. Uh, I don't know. We just increased our platform. So it's uh, it's all over the place. Yeah. Very great. accessible. Okay, great. And uh, also, you're, you have a... a I was trying to figure out where to send people, and you, you have you have a website that I, I think do. be kind of the the mothership maybe of. Um, you Amy, want me to you Amy, want me to Amy, promote the, that? org. That is correct, and you can okay. follow me on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook at Doctor Myers Pod. All right, all right. Well, Doctor Myers. I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Shrinkwrap Radio, and I thank uh, you. I thank yeah. you so much for for allowing me this platform and this opportunity. And as I said, you know, I've listened to your show for quite some time, so it's a double pleasure to to be with you. And uh, I look forward to anything further down the road. Today's guest, Amy Myers, Ph.D., LCSW, was a delight to interview. I wasn't certain what to expect. Of course, I was happy to learn that she's been a longtime listener to Shrinkwrap Radio. And, of course, that gives her high marks to begin with. She's been podcasting for a couple of years and also has an associated blog, I had not listened to enough of her podcast to understand that, like me, she relies mostly on guest interviews. In the case of her podcast, those guests are always other therapists, and the focus tends to be their experiences with transference and countertransference. Thus, the title of the show, What Would Dr. Myers Do? She explained that she was inspired to give her show that title, by a remark from one of her supervisees who reported they asked themselves that question whenever they get stuck. This remark caused Dr. Myers to speculate that there might be an audience interested in the internal world of therapists. In other words, quotes, the other side of the couch. Amy Myers might be relatively new to podcasting, but she's hardly new to the practice of therapy. I can understand her students' somewhat worshipful wondering as to what would Dr. Myers do. Indeed, I can imagine myself asking the same question. As you will hear in the interview, she has an awesome range of experience in a broad array of psychiatric and agency settings. Moreover, her academic credentials of both an MA and PhD in social work, as well as 10 years of training and personal analysis from a psychoanalytic institute, give her a solid foundation. I'm also impressed by her practical outlook and flexibility to get training in CBT, realizing analysis is not suitable or affordable for all the suffering souls out there. Clearly, she's done her own inner work. I couldn't help noticing that a thread of her work has been in the area of, quotes, sibling abuse. I dug a bit into her family history, and indeed, she shared that professional focus is rooted in her own family history. She was not yet comfortable going into specific details publicly, but shared her process may be leading her in that direction. I admire her courage and transparency in quotes coming out that much in our interview. 
I also respect her humility and careful balancing of her earned authoritativeness and yet backing away from dogmatic certainty. She has become wise, so I think we all might do well to pause and ask ourselves, what would Dr. Myers do? Oh, hi, Dr. Dave. This is Josune, and I just had made a donation to your podcast, and it feels really good doing it. So it's something that I wanted to do for a long time. I am been listening to your podcast for the last couple of years. I have just graduated from clinical psychology, marriage family therapist, and while I was taking a break, I will download your podcast and go on a hike or my long commute, um, and I really enjoyed it, and it's been something that I really wanted to do, make a donation to as a small gesture to say thank you so much for all the good work that you do, Dr. Dave. And I wanted to encourage other listeners to do so and so that you can keep doing what you do. So anyhow, thank you so much for the wonderful work that you do. And I encourage other listeners to do so. Thanks, Dr. Dave. Bye-bye. Thank you, newly minted therapist, Josene. Congratulations on finishing up your studies. I'm happy to learn that my podcast episodes have been a good supplement for your learning. Josene, thank you for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow your fine example. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, Amy Myers, PhD, LCSW, for sharing so generously the fruits of your 30 years of therapeutic experience in this interview and in your fine podcast and blog. Next week, my return guest will be ecologist and Jungian psychologist, Gay Bradshaw, who was interviewed by my London colleague, Isabella Clark, recently on episode number 840. I was so moved by that interview that I wanted to hear more from Dr. Bradshaw, and so I'll be interviewing her about her book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. This promises to be a very interesting interview, and I hope you'll join us. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.